Chapter 25 of Lover or a Friend by Rosa Carey Mr. Harcourt speaks his mind. It is idle to talk a young woman in love out of her passion. Love does not lie in the ear. Horace Walpole Mrs. Blake was expecting them, had been expecting them for hours. Audrey could see that in a moment. The October evenings were chilly, and most people in Rutherford lighted a fire at sundown. So a clear little fire burned in the drawing-room grate, and Mrs. Blake's favourite lamp with a pink shade cast a rosy glow over the little tea-table. The cups were ranged in due order, and some hot cakes were on the brass trivet, but the little tea-maker was not at her usual post. Only Mrs. Blake was standing alone in the middle of the room, and as Cyril led Audrey to her, she threw her arms round the girl with almost hysterical violence. "'Oh, my dear, dear, dearest girl!' she exclaimed, pressing her with convulsive force, and Audrey felt a little embarrassed. "'I thought you would be looking for us,' she said, releasing herself gently. "'I asked Cyril to bring me. It seemed the right thing.' "'No, dear, it was not the right thing,' returned Mrs. Blake almost solemnly. "'It was for me to come to you. But all the same I knew Cyril would bring you. My boy would remember his mother, even in his happiness.' It was not my thought, began Cyril, but a very sweet look from Audrey checked him. What does it matter whose thought it was, she said in her direct way. If I asked him to bring me, it was because I knew it was what he wished, though he did not like to ask me. Dear Mrs. Blake, was it likely that I should stay away when we have always been such friends? For a moment Mrs. Blake seemed unable to answer. Some curious emotion impeded her utterance. She turned very pale and trembled visibly. And we shall be better friends than ever now, continued Audrey, taking her hand, for she felt very tender towards the beautiful woman who was Cyril's mother. I trust so, returned Mrs. Blake, in a low voice, but there was a melancholy gleam in her large, dark eyes. Then, with an effort to recover her usual manner, Audrey, I hope you have forgiven me for troubling you so yesterday. You must not expect me to say I am sorry, or that I repent a word that I said then, but all the same I was rather hard on you. You certainly made me very wretched. Yes, I felt I was very cruel, but one cannot measure one's words at such a moment. I felt as though my children and I were being driven out of our paradise. And you thought it was my fault? But Audrey blushed a little as she asked the question. Oh, hush! And Mrs. Blake glanced at her son with pretended alarm. Do you know that in spite of all I had done for him, that ungrateful boy actually presumed to lecture me? He would have it that I had been cruel to you, and that no one but a woman would have taken such a mean advantage. But all the time he looked so happy that I forgave him. All's well that ends well. That is what I told him. Cyril shook his head. Even in his happiness he had been unable to refrain from uttering his disapproval of his mother's tactics. His nature was almost as simple and transparent as Audrey's. It hurt him to remember how his mother had appealed to this girl's sense of compassion. Do not let us talk any more of it, he said quickly. I think Audrey has a great deal to forgive, but you and I, mother, know her generosity. And the look that accompanied these words left Audrey silent for a moment. Where is Molly? she exclaimed presently, when, after a little more conversation, Mrs. Blake insisted that she must have just one cup of tea. In vain, Audrey protested that they had had tea already at Woodcut, that in another hour or so they would have to dine. Mrs. Blake could not be induced to let them off. Where is Molly? she continued. May I go and look for her, Mrs. Blake? But before Mrs. Blake could answer, Audrey had exchanged a glance with Cyril and disappeared. She found Molly in the dining room. She was pacing up and down the room with a small black kitten in her arms, but the moment Audrey appeared the kitten was discarded, 
and flung upon four trembling, sprawling legs, and Molly sprang towards her, almost overwhelming her with a girlish vehemence. Oh, Miss Ross, my dear Miss Ross, is it really true? Cyril said so this morning, but I could not believe him. I must hear it from your own lips. Do you mean, is it true that I hope one day to become your sister? Of course it is true, dear Molly. Oh, I am so glad. I am more than glad. I have been crying with joy half the day. But is he good enough for you, Miss Ross? Gazing at her idol with intense anxiety. I am very fond of Cyril. Kester and I think there is no one like him. But it does not seem as though anyone were quite good enough for you. Oh, Molly, what nonsense. But I am not going to believe you. What do you mean by calling me Miss Ross, you silly child? Didn't I tell you we were going to be sisters? Molly, who had been rubbing her cheeks against her friend in a fondling, kittenish sort of way, started back in a moment. But I could not call you anything else, she returned, becoming crimson with shyness. You will always be Miss Ross to me. My Miss Ross, you know. I could not think of you as anyone else. It will be such a liberty to call you by your Christian name. Well, never mind. It will come naturally by and by, returned Audrey tranquilly. I shall know you are fond of me, whatever you choose to call me, so you and Kester can do as you like. May I write and tell him? pleaded Molly. Oh, dear Miss Ross, do let me. But Audrey was not inclined to give permission. She explained to Molly that she meant to write herself to Captain Burnett, and that she thought Cyril would send Kester a note. Better leave it to him, she suggested. You can write to him afterwards. And as usual, Molly was docile. They went upstairs after this, Molly picking up the kitten on the way. Cyril sprang to the door as he heard their footsteps. Have we been long? Audrey asked, turning to him with a smile. Cyril hardly knew what he answered. For a moment a sense of giddiness came over him, as though he were suddenly dazzled. Could it really be true? he asked himself more than once. Audrey did not seem to guess his failings. She was perfectly tranquil and at her ease. She had laid aside her hat and jacket to please Mrs. Blake, and as she sat there sipping her tea and talking softly to them all, she looked so fair and girlish in her lover's sight that the infatuated young man could not remove his eyes from her. And yet Audrey was only in the old dark-red cashmere that was Geraldine's pet aversion. But her brown hair had golden gleams in it, and the grey eyes were very bright and soft. And perhaps, with that changing colour, Audrey did look pretty, for youth and love are great beautifiers even of homely features. Audrey was sorry when Cyril reminded her that it was time to go. She was loath to leave that little drawing-room, so bright with lamplight and firelight. She went home and dressed for dinner in her white gown, feeling as though she were in some placid dream. The rest of the evening passed very tranquilly. Dr. Ross asked for some music. He was not in the mood for conversation. So Audrey sang to them all her favorite songs, while Cyril stood beside her and turned over the leaves. Now and then they could exchange a word or two. And just at the last she must needs sing Widow Miller, when as usual Dr. Ross softly beat time and crooned an accompaniment. The sang of the lark finds the widow dear, The beer of her wheel starts the night's dreamy ear, The tears of the toe-tap will whiles fall like rain, Yet there's nobody hears Widow Miller complain. What a sad song, my dear. I should like to hear something more cheerful, whispered Cyril as she finished. But she did not seem to hear him. She rose from her seat and crossed the room to the corner where Dr. Ross was sitting. That is your favourite song, Daddy, she said, leaning over him. And as he smiled and nodded, she sat down on the low chair beside him and looked thoughtfully into the fire. She roused herself presently to bid Cyril good-bye and to linger a moment with him at the door in the starlight. I shall not see you until luncheon tomorrow unless you pass the window, he said with the egotism common to lovers. 
You will think of me until then, will you not, dear? Of course I shall think of you, returned Audrey with her usual gentleness. But she seemed to wonder a little at the sudden passion with which Cyril clasped her to him. Good night, Cyril, dear. I shall be very busy all the morning writing letters, but we can have the walk you propose after four. And then she went back to her seat and leant her cheek against her father's arm as she looked into the fire again. A penny for your thoughts, my child, observed Dr. Russ, when they had both been silent for a long time. Though I suppose I need not ask. I was thinking of Michael, she returned guiltily. Dear old Michael, how I wish he could be happy too. And then she bade them both good night, and went up to her room, and strange to say, her last thought before she fell asleep was to wonder what Michael would say. The boys marvelled more than once the following morning at their master's evident abstraction. In spite of his efforts to fix his attention on Greek verbs and exercises, Cyril's eyes would turn perpetually to the window, but no slight girlish figure in dark red cashmere appeared on the terrace to gather the yellow and white and violet chrysanthemums that bloomed in the borders. Audrey was in her own private sanctum, and had given orders that no one should disturb her. Even Molly was to be sent away. She had very important business in her hands. There was her letter to Geraldine, and a very difficult one it was to write, so difficult that more than once Audrey thought that she would put on her hat and go up to Hillside instead, but she remembered that Gage was expecting visitors to luncheon. They would probably come early and drive away before dusk. Her letter must not be delivered before then. So she addressed herself again to her task. After all, it was a very sweet, womanly letter, and might have touched any sister's heart. If you cannot conscientiously approve, you can at least wish me joy in the life I have chosen for myself, she wrote. I have accepted Mr. Blake of my own free will, because I think he is worthy of my affection. You do not know him yet, but he is so good, so good. Sometimes I think even Michael is not more to be trusted, and so on. But after all, it was far easier to write to Michael. Audrey had no need to pick her words or arrange her ideas with him. She could tell him everything as frankly as though he were her brother. There need be no limit to her confidence. Michael would never misunderstand her. The one drawback is that you are still away, she finished affectionately. I shall not feel things are perfect until we have had one of our long talks on Michael's bench. When are you coming home? It will soon be in November, and the trees will be stripped of their leaves. Why do you trouble yourself about another man's business? No one wants you more than your deserved cousin and friend, Audrey Ross. And when this letter was in the post, and the note for Geraldine lying on the marble slab in the hall, she felt a sense of relief, and had leisure to think of Cyril. They had their walk together after afternoon school, but it soon grew dusk, and Audrey suggested that, as her mother was alone, they should go back to Woodcott to tea. There was no invitation to dinner that night, but Cyril did not expect it. He had his dormitory work, and as Audrey promised to see him before he went away for the night, he was quite content. "'You must not think that I mean to bore Mrs. Ross with intruding myself on all occasions,' he said. "'I know you will tell me when I may come. I mean to be guided entirely by you. Under these circumstances, a man is tempted to be selfish.' You will never be selfish, she said with one of her charming smiles. I could never have promised to marry a selfish man, but Cyril, you will be guided by me in that other thing, changing her tone and looking at him very seriously, for they had had rather a hot argument. Cyril was going to Peterborough the next day to buy the betrothal ring, and Audrey had petitioned for a gold one. But it will only look like a wedding guard, he had remonstrated, 
for he would rather have denied himself everything for six months. If only he could buy something fit for her acceptance, a pearl or sapphire ring, for example. Diamonds were beyond his means. But Audrey could not be induced to say that she liked pearls. On the contrary, she manifested an extraordinary preference for the idea of a broad, chaste gold band, with her own and Cyril's initials inside. I am going to marry a poor man, she said decidedly, and he must not waste his money on me. What does it matter if it looked like a guard? He can serve that purpose afterwards. Please do not look so disappointed, Cyril. When you can afford it, you shall give me any ring you like, pearl or diamond. But I like diamonds best. And she was so evidently in earnest that he had to yield to her. And Audrey wore her gold ring with immense satisfaction. Audrey spent her evening quietly with her parents. She and Dr. Ross played chess together, and when he went off to his study, she stayed and talked to her mother. Mrs. Ross was not a lively companion that evening. The fear of Geraldine's disapproval was quickening her latent feelings of uneasiness into activity, and she could not keep those feelings to herself. I wonder if Geraldine will answer your letter this evening, Audrey. I don't think so, Mother dear. I'm to go there tomorrow, you see, so there'll be no need for her to write. I'm afraid that she will be hurt because you have not gone to her today. She will think it rather odd for you to write. Why, Mother, opening her eyes rather widely at this, don't you remember Mr. and Mrs. Bland were to lunch there? How could Gage give me her attention? And then with guests to entertain? It would never have done to run the risk of upsetting her. Percival would have glared at us through luncheon if he had noticed her eyes were red. You know how easily Gage cries. Did you tell her this in your letter? I think I implied it, but I am not sure. Oh, well, we must wait until tomorrow, with a sigh. But I can't deny I am very anxious. You will go up to Hillside directly after breakfast, will you not, my dear? And do beg Geraldine to come back with you. I feel I shall not have a moment's peace until I have seen her. Poor dear mother, observed Audrey caressingly, for there was a look of care in Mrs. Ross's brow. But though Audrey cheered up her mother and made her little jokes, she was quite aware of the ordeal that was before her, and it was with some undefined idea of propitiating her sister that she laid aside the red cashmere the next morning and put on a certain grey gown which Gage especially admired. It had a hat to match, with a grey wing, and Geraldine always looked at her approvingly when she came to Hillside in the grey gown. She was on the terrace, picking two or three yellow chrysanthemums, when she saw her brother-in-law coming towards her. A visit from him at this hour was a most unusual proceeding, and Andre at once guessed that his business was with her. The idea of any interference from her brother-in-law was decidedly unpalatable. Nevertheless, she awaited him smilingly. Mr. Harcourt was a man who walked well. He had a fine carriage of the head, though some people said he held himself a little too erect and too much with the air of a man who recognises his own superiority. But as Audrey watched him as he walked up the terrace, she thought he had never held his head so proudly before. You are a very early visitor this morning, Percival, she observed as she arranged the chrysanthemums on her grey dress. As she looked up at him pleasantly, she shook hands with him. But there was no answering smile on Mr. Harcourt's face. It is a very unusual business that brings me, he replied rather solemnly. Is there anyone in the drawing-room, Audrey? I should like to speak to you quietly. Susan is there, dusting the ornaments, but I can easily send her away, rejoined Audrey cheerfully. Mother is in the study. And then she led the way to the drawing-room and gave Susan a hint to withdraw. Mr. Harcourt waited until the door was shut, and he put down his hat and faced round on his sister-in-law. This is a very sad business, he said, still with the same portentous air of solemnity. 
I'm sorry to say your sister is dreadfully upset. Oh, I hope not, returned Audrey quickly. I have never seen her more upset about anything. She hardly slept at all last night, and I was half afraid I should have to send for Dr. Musgrave this morning. She was not quite strong enough to bear such a shock. Gage is so sensitive, you see. She is not more sensitive than other people, feeling himself bound to defend his wife's nerves. I am not in the least surprised to find how much she has taken it to heart. I think she feels very properly about it. We are both as disappointed as possible. We hoped better things of you, Audrey. Is that not a little severe? I think not. I am bound to tell you the truth, plainly, that Geraldine and I strongly disapprove of this engagement. I am so sorry, returned Audrey, with provoking good humour. But you see, Percival, one must be guided by one's own feelings in such a personal matter. And I hope when you engage, know Mr. Blake a little better, that you will alter your opinion. I am afraid I must differ from you there, even at the risk of displeasing you. I must say that I think Mr. Blake is the last man to make you happy. Now, what reason could you have for making such a sweeping assertion? asked Audrey, waxing a little warm at this. Percival had no right to stand there lecturing her after this fashion. It was not in a brother-in-law's province to interfere with her choice of a lover. If her parents had given their sanction to her engagement, and allowed her to throw herself away on a poor man, it was surely no one else's business to say a dissenting word. Percival might go home and lecture his own wife if he liked. It is a pity you engage us so worldly, she said in what was meant to be a withering tone. Audrey had never been so near quarrelling with her brother-in-law. Worldly, he repeated in rather a perplexed tone. My dear girl, I confess I do not understand you. It is very easy to understand, she returned coldly. You engage object to Mr. Blake because he is poor and has not made his position. You think I am throwing myself away because I have engaged myself to a junior classical master who has to work his way up. Just so, observed Mr. Harcourt. That is exactly what we do think. And yet you are surprised because I call you worldly. If you only knew how differently father and I think. Perhaps he is disappointed too. Indeed, I know that he is. He wanted me to marry an older man. But all the same, he agrees with me, that a man so honourable and clever, one who has borne so high a character, who is so good a son and brother, will be likely to make a woman happy. Mr. Harcourt shrugged his shoulders. They were arguing from different points. Audrey was not likely to convince him. He had started with a preconceived dislike to the whole business. He now proceeded to pull Audrey's impulsive speech to pieces. I do not deny that Blake is a good fellow, and he is clever too, but in marrying him you will be descending in the social scale. Who are the Blakes? No one knows anything about them. Edith always declared the father was a city man, but we do know that his mother is distinctly objectionable. Excuse me, Percival, but you are speaking of a close friend. Even if she were not Cyril's mother, my friendship for her should prevent you from speaking against her in my presence. Mr. Harcourt groaned as he heard the word Cyril, but he felt at the same time that he had gone too far. His quick temper had carried him away. He hastened to apologize. You must forgive me, Audrey, if I speak a little too plainly, but this is such a bitter disappointment to me. My very affection for you makes me object all the more strongly to this engagement. As Geraldine said to me last night, she has only one sister, and this makes it all the harder for her. Yes, I understand. I am very sorry to disappoint you both. But, Percival, the thing is done now, and I want you engaged to make the best of it. Will you not reconsider your decision? he asked, and there was softness and real affection in his look. Perhaps, after all, you may have mistaken your feelings. 
A girl is sometimes talked into a thing. But she shook her head. I have not mistaken them, she said quietly. Don't say any more, Percival. I have no wish to quarrel, and of course I am a little sore about this. Then Mr. Harcourt felt that his mission had been unsuccessful. The girl was contumacious and would listen to no one. It's all Dr. Ross's fault, he said to himself as he took up his hat and prepared to walk with her to Hillside. If he had refused his consent, she would have given the thing up, but in worldly matters my respected father-in-law is a mere child. 